Grace, mercy, and peace to you on this first Sunday after Christmas. From God our Father, and from our Lord and the Incarnate Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's only been a few days since our celebration of the Nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our Gospel reading for this morning, however, we're going to fast forward some six weeks from that miraculous birth. Under the Old Testament ceremonial law, mothers who bore a son were required to come to the Lord's house after 40 days and offer a sacrifice of purification. Not only that, the law also stipulated that firstborn males in particular were to be presented to the Lord as a gift. In Exodus 34, in fact, God had said that the firstborn male offspring, whether man or animal, belonged to Him. Moreover, they were to be a sacrifice to Him. This was a very deep and distinctive way of first fruits giving, was it not? Of not withholding even that which was nearest and dearest to us from the one who had given us everything in the first place. Furthermore, every firstborn male child was to be consecrated to the Lord's service. In His grace and in His divine wisdom, however, the Lord had also established a way by which the firstborn might be redeemed from this service and this sacrifice. In the case of the necessity of serving in the Lord's house, for example, God had established that the tribe of Levi would serve on behalf of all the other houses of Israel. Otherwise, as Martin Luther once observed, pretty soon the tabernacle or temple grounds would have become hugely overcrowded by all these firstborn male children serving as priests. On the other hand, Think of how strong and vibrant our church today might be if even a small percentage of families considered encouraging their children, firstborn males or secondborn males or whatever, into serving in the Lord's house. But that's another matter entirely, is it not? God had also made it possible that the firstborn might be redeemed from being the sacrificial offering. Now, this could be done through a monetary offering. It could be done through the sacrifice of a young lamb or through the sacrifice of a pair of doves or pigeons. You see, even in those days, the Lord had established a very reasonable expectation that every family should give to His work according to that household's own means. It is apparent to us from the lesson for today that Joseph and Mary must have been somewhat modest in their financial situation. For the sacrifice which they brought to the temple that day was that of the lowest echelon, simply two birds. Think of it for a moment. Given the incredible blessing of a newborn child, the only thing that the Lord requires of the parents is a minimal sacrifice to redeem what is rightly the Creator's. Now, Mary was certainly Jesus' rightful mother, but in carrying out the requirements of the law, she and her earthly husband Joseph 
acknowledge that Jesus, like every single other child, was truly God's own creation and God's own possession. Many of you might recall that this claim on the firstborn had been established by God at the time of the Exodus. It was to serve as a reminder to the people of Israel that God had spared all of their firstborns when the angel of death had passed through Egypt on that fateful night. The angel had killed all the firstborns of the Egyptians, man and beast alike. But no Israelite who had been protected by the blood of the unblemished lamb had suffered that incredible horror. Then for century upon century, God's faithful people had followed this ordinance, showing their obedience to the law and demonstrating that they truly understood that their children were a blessing from God. And now even this divine child, Jesus, was submitted through the obedience of his parents to what might seem to us to be a burdensome obligation. But from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was made subject to the law, obedient to it in every way, so that he might remain sinless. His example is one which we who are also God's children should cultivate, both to increase our faith and to demonstrate it to one another and to the sinful world around us. The obedience of Mary and Joseph and Jesus on this occasion, however, stands in stark contrast to the way that we often live our lives, doesn't it? This sinless child becomes subordinate to the law, a law over which he was both author and judge, even to the seemingly insignificant details of it. How often do we ignore, or even sometimes somewhat proudly flaunt, those things which we, in our own pride and ignorance, have declared to be an unnecessary inconvenience or a too stringent requirement of the law. Our failings in such things are even more glaring when we consider that not only was Jesus a sinless child, but that the very purification itself was intended for mothers who had conceived their children in the normal human way, not through the power of God the Holy Spirit, as Mary had. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves and our sinfulness and shrink from it in despair when we realize how Christ has freed us from the great burdens of the ceremonial and the civil law that the Israelites had followed. And He has done this by His own suffering, death, and resurrection. Yet even with all of the less stringent requirements of the law we now have, we still daily sin much and fall short of both God's glory and fall short of giving Him glory and thanksgiving for all of His blessings. We know what we should do, and we even know for the most part how we should do it. But, rather than using our intellect and our energy, and yes, even our faith, to resist these temptations and to follow both the guidance and the example of our Savior, it seems we are constantly striving to find new and creative ways to tiptoe and thread our way around the law. We're very adept, aren't we, at rationalizing and explaining away our sins. We'll go to great lengths to find ways to make them seem acceptable to others 
even though we know they're totally unacceptable to God. And we know that, too. What's more, we would love to find ways to make God's demands and requirements more acceptable to us, to water them down, to reduce them to only applying in those situations where they aren't going to make things too difficult or cumbersome for us. Maybe even to only follow them when we're around those people who might see us in church. Yet isn't that evil intent the same sort of thing that caused Satan himself to be driven out of the kingdom of heaven? The devil wanted to take the rightful authority of God and make it his own. And we can follow in the devil's footsteps whenever we put ourselves in a position of sitting in God's judgment seat and interpreting and deciding upon his law for our own purposes. Again, Martin Luther, in discussing this text on the purification of Mary, made a very strong point of contrasting the pride and the rebelliousness that was often seen in biblical firstborns with the humility and the obedience of the Christ. Starting with Lucifer, the foremost of the angels at one time, and continuing on through Cain and through Ishmael and through Esau, each of these misused God-given blessings and the opportunities that they had received. They'd made decisions out of self-interest rather than considering their place in God's order of creation and conforming, them, conforming themselves to His perfect and holy will. Even on a whole, we saw the nation of Israel often prideful about its place as God's chosen people. They thought that their position and their blessings were somehow entitlements, rightfully theirs on account of their own merits and actions, rather than on account of the gracious workings of God. In God's own time, though, each of these individuals and the nation itself were humbled and then finally cast aside. And in the process, they lost the great privilege of being God's favored, all on account of their pride. So it is for us as well. It is certainly right for us to derive great joy from our election as God's chosen people. Think of it. You and I are among those who were specially selected by the Lord out of all of that far-flung number of people throughout the whole face of the earth. We, we were chosen to hear His gracious message of salvation and to be given the gift of faith in Christ Jesus, the firstborn who was humble and obedient. Do we receive and do we magnify that gift appropriately? Do we do so with thanksgiving, with humility, with joyful tears even? Or do we instead look down on the rest of humanity, raise our noses and thrust out our chests and think, or even say aloud sometimes, I'm a Christian. I've really got it all going on. Do you think for a minute that you're a Christian because you deserve to be? Do you think that you're saved from your sins and redeemed from the threat of eternal death and punishment because of some self-worth that you have? Think again. God humbles the prideful 
and the arrogant. And he elevates and he glories the humble and the obedient. We see it again and again in the Scriptures, don't we? The Old Testament Joseph, somewhat full of himself and a bit of a tattletale, he was sold into slavery, later imprisoned in Egypt, all on account of his brothers being jealous because they thought he was getting preferential treatment. King David, anointed to lead God's people in spite of being the youngest son, when King Saul, who preceded him, became proud and disobedient. King David himself was, of course, later humbled, even crushed after he'd used the kingly power given to him by God for his own selfish and sinful purposes. We must never presume that the blessings of God and all of his gifts are ours by entitlement. Were they dependent upon our own merits, we would not only starve and suffer and die, we would be condemned to bear the punishment for our wickedness and to experience eternally the despair of separation from our Lord and Savior. Instead, by His grace and mercy, it is a gift of God that we have heard His Word and received the living and saving faith which that Word bestows upon us. And it is a living faith that calls us to kneel humbly before Him in contrition and repentance, as we have done already this day. There we acknowledge our pride, our arrogance, and our rebelliousness. It is also a living faith which brings us to His table to receive the saving body and blood of that obedient Son, one who is obedient even unto death, and a death on the cross. It is a living faith which guides us to turn back again and again onto the path of obedience and humility when our sinful nature wants to take us and does take us into straying onto paths of prideful decisions, setting ourselves above God's law. And it is the obedience and the humility of a living faith that leads us to convey God's same word to others, to call to them to gently share in the blessings that we, as the new firstborns of God, already enjoy so richly and regularly. The obedience and the humility of Jesus and His earthly parents is not only our example, it is our great privilege to witness and to follow and to be blessed by. It is the way of the Lord. We heard of it this season in Mary's gentle acceptance of the great responsibility of bearing the Incarnate Son. We heard it in her song of thankfulness at being elevated from a lowly handmaiden to being the very mother of God Himself. Today, we have also witnessed it in Simeon. He followed the Holy Spirit's direction to come to the house of the Lord on this day of Mary's purification and Jesus' presentation. We saw it in His willing acceptance that having seen the salvation of the Lord's Christ, He was now ready to depart this life in trusting confidence and in great joy. Rejoice then yourself this day. Rejoice with Mary and with Joseph. Rejoice with Simeon and with Anna and with all of those who rise in the new Israel of the church 
whose rising depends solely upon the redemption provided by this Christ child. Marvel, like Mary and Joseph did, at all of the things that have been told you about this child. But marvel all the more at what it is he has done and that he did it in such great humility and obedience. Marvel that he fulfilled the law for the lawless and he brought the gospel to the despairing. Then, with a childlike faith, return each of you to your place as well. Grow strong in the Lord. Be filled with his great wisdom. And may the grace of God be upon you as well, now and always. Amen. Amen.